Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Genevieve Kosky and Scott Tobias. It's about, about the most definitive I've ever heard you say your name, Scott. Usually there's a question mark in there. <laughs> I got a lot of confidence these days. Good. That's awesome. On last week's episode, we discussed 1945's Brief Encounter, a smaller early film for British director David Lean, before he went on to sprawling epics like Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago. It's the story of two people who fall for each other, but can't pursue an affair because they're both married, though one of them is far more reluctant to flout convention, ignore impropriety, and throw caution to the wind than the other. That same dynamic seems to play out through Decision to Leave, a murder mystery romance from Old Boy, Stoker, and the Handmaiden director Park Chan-wook. In this case, the more reluctant party appears to be Hei Jun, a married police detective who starts questioning the truth after being called to investigate the seemingly accidental death of a rich businessman who fell off a mountain while rock climbing. Heijun's relentless devotion to the truth makes him look deeper into what seems like an open and shut case and starts suspecting that the Korean businessman's quiet Chinese wife, So Rae, might have had something to do with his death. Early on in the investigation, So Rae and Heijun share an elaborate sushi dinner in his police station's interrogation room, a quiet, decorous meal that makes his co-workers suspect something about them is a little off. The sushi he buys is too fancy and expensive. The way they set the table together seems too coordinated and in sync. It's just one hint that these two are simpatico in all sorts of small ways, which keeps becoming clearer as she slips past his guard and starts telling him things about himself that he likely thought no one else saw including his wife, who he only sees on weekends. Park and his co-writer, Jong So Kang, build these characters and their romance through a ton of quirks and idiosyncrasies, just as they build up the case against So Rae with a slow-burn investigation that leaves Hei Jun with a big dilemma about how to proceed with the woman he's fallen for. And then as it seems like that story is wrapping up, there's a big twist, and then another one, and then another one, leading up to a conclusion as shocking as anything Park put on screen during his heyday of making violent films about violent revenge schemes. So what to make of this movie, which takes nearly two and a half hours to pile up all these strange details into one big emotional picture? We'll talk about it after this break. Oh, 
젊고 예쁘고 외국인이어서 피의자가 돼야 되냐? 알리바이 입증된 거야. 예쁜 거 인정하시는 거네요. Scott, uh, I saw this movie okay. at Fantastic Fest in Austin, like surrounded by movies like Smile and The Menu, you know, like very slick, <laughs> fast moving, like Hollywoody uh, horror movies. And this mm-hmm. this movie with its like its slow burn romance and its like careful character building and its two characters who love each other but can't love each other reminded me so much of Wong Kar Wai and some of your favorite films. I found myself mm-hmm. thinking at Fantastic Fest, like, is Scott going to dig this? <laughs> my, my inner Scott Tobias says yes, unless he feels it's like a shadow of those films. Scott? Fulfill my curiosity, like improve my inner scout. What did you think of this movie? I mean, I liked it quite a bit, as you might imagine, though I did feel like one viewing was not enough. And I felt like viewing it on my computer monitor rather than on a, on a screen Ooh. was was a big problem. Scott, airplay. What are you doing? Airplay? Well, <laughs> you can, you you can really project want to do that to with, a sc- with an indie TV screener? Is that going to look good? I had an app on my Apple TV. It, it looks oh, lovely. Oh, that's right. Okay. But, okay. Yeah, no, their apps are fine, but but my name would have been in the middle of the screen. So I, I felt I felt a little bit, I mean, you, as you said, I mean, the twist after twist after twist do sort of pile up towards the end because it actually starts out by his standards to be fairly simple it's pretty straightforward this case that is being worked on to the point where she is kind of exonerated and it's uh, you know the, and uh, ready to move on and then things kind of go a little bit deeper and then another case comes in and a lot of things it just it gets very twisty and then quite dark in the very end but i i mean i was bewitched by it and that, i mean that, that's the key point is like is like I really want to see this film a second time because i do feel confident that once i can really get a full grasp on it that i i will push all those buttons i mean vertigo is kind of like the big is a big kind of touchstone here and it's in in, it for me and it's kind of like what if vertigo but if the woman had a certain amount of power (laughs) that she doesn't have in in vertigo what if his voyeurism an obsession were answered somehow by her power her her mysteriousness her kind of assertion of self i think that dynamic made it, it gave this movie kind of a, a a nice charge to it and then it's, and then just on top of that it's so elegant like like you think about where he his career started i mean he was always somebody who could spin these extraordinarily ornate you know revenge stories with with very you know convoluted but but well thought through plots and, and some of that is here. I mean, it, this is this does have that kind of that plotting does come into play eventually here. But so many of the emotions and the mysteries and stuff are, are a little more internal, a little subtler here. I think he's kind of. It seems like a. I guess for lack of a better word, a more mature film. I guess than we're used to seeing from him. I appreciate it. I think I will appreciate it more when I can see it properly. I mean, proper or not proper, it's it sure as hell going to play differently a second time. I'm looking forward to that yeah. experience, too. Genevieve, my inner Genevieve did not uh, speak up during Fantastic <laughs> Fest, but I am curious what you thought of this movie. Well, my inner Genevieve uh, <laughs> loves The Handmaiden more than, I mean, 
basically the handmaiden is my reference point for park chan wook like i i haven't seen old boy or, or some of these earlier mm. uh you know we we've established my feelings about revenge narratives they are not something i am uh typically drawn to yeah but the handmaiden i absolutely loved and like this film reminded me of it and in, in, in a lot of ways uh right down to the structure like i think like Handmaiden is very clearly three parts, and I think this movie is very clearly two parts. You know, an Act One and an Act Two, and they you know speak to each other in big important ways. But it's you know the the structure is very clear. So I I appreciate that, and, and then I, in both cases, in both the case of uh, Decision to Leave and The Handmaiden, I think that sort of attention to structure uh, does a lot to mitigate the feeling of it being a long film because both of them are, are over two hour films, you know, close to, uh, Handmaiden is over two and a half hours, oh, yeah. I think. Yeah, so I, I think that sort of the attention paid to how the film is put together does a lot to sort of keep the momentum going, even as individual scenes are very quiet or drawn out, or there's maybe not a lot of action happening. But every like it, both of them, the, these movies kind of like fit together in a like very pleasing puzzle piece way for me. That said, I definitely need another viewing before I can like put all the puzzle pieces in place mm-hmm. on on decision to leave, especially in that second act, and sort of how the I guess you call it a mystery, sort of the the I guess sort of how the crime element of their relationship resolves. Like I understand on a very visceral emotional level, like what their relationship means and how it ends and you know what is what they are feeling as far as sort of the rhyming investigations that are happening in the first part and second part uh involving Soray's two dead husbands <laughs> the second one i did have a little more trouble sort of tracking that and i think having a better grasp on how sort of the wheels fall off at the end would make it even more satisfying that said like the final scene of this movie is incredible. I actually DM'd you both earlier today because I like wanted to make sure I wasn't like missing something or some sort of like equivocation that would make it less sort of audacious than I was reading it as. And like, no, that it, it, it did what I thought it did and, and good for it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah, it's it's startling at various points throughout this film. And, and I think that this is a very deliberate thing that Park and his co-writer do. The twists in this movie don't feel like, uh, you know, the the much touted twist in Barbarian, for instance, is just like a big in your face. Oh, my God, left left turn, big swerve. I hesitate to like overemphasize the connection here with Vertigo, which uh, Park has also said that that was that and Brief Encounter are kind of his big touch points here. But I didn't want to overemphasize Vertigo because I was afraid people might think they knew what the twists were here. And it's much more kind of the conceptual structure and the imbalanced relationship where one person has much more of an agenda than the other that he's taking from Vertigo, but not the specifics. But there are twists in Vertigo that just kind of like slap you in the face hard. And nothing really did that here for me. But there are a bunch of developments where you just you find yourself saying, 
where are we now? What's going on? And as, as Genevieve said, kind of trying to put the, the puzzle pieces together. And I enjoyed the engagement of that. Like, I, I love a film that challenges me to, to keep up and to put all the pieces together. But as Scott says, I think it's just going to be such a different film on second viewing because mm-hmm. so much of what goes on in the early days of this film seems like trivia, seems like really almost distracting bits and pieces about the character. Like there's there's a whole <laughs> that scene where the two of them eat sushi together in an interrogation room. Like there's it's just sort of a mystery like what we're meant to get out of it until later when you see like how their relationship develops around these kind of simpatico moments. There's a whole bunch of stuff around the fact that he has his clothing tailored to include a whole lot of extra pockets and his pockets are full of, you know, things like tissues and uh, chapstick, chapstick and just like all of these little, <laughs> little details. What's that about? Like, what's the thing where she keeps stopping to talk to her phone and then have her phone talk to him instead of talking to him directly? They're just all of these character details that seem like far too much and like far too many things going on. And the elegance of the process by which they all fall together into some very specific portraits of some very specific and difficult people navigating difficult situations, I think is fascinating. I I love the way he structures films, but he's definitely building films both for very patient people and for for rewatchers, you know, for people who enjoy putting puzzles together, but then enjoy even more taking those puzzles apart and putting them together after knowing where all of the pieces are supposed to end up eventually. Yeah. I mean, I think you think, you think about the kind of arc of his career, uh, those early films, you know, he showed all kinds of talent for style. He showed all kinds of talent for telling extremely complicated stories, you know, being, being a a real master at at, uh, bringing together a lot of pieces that would be too complicated for any other director to really manage but what i've been been appreciating more as his career has evolved is the precision which which with the refinement that has kind of come into play particularly these last two movies with the handmaiden and now with decision to leave is you just feel like nothing is out of place you know there's been an enormous amount of detail that is invested in every aspect of the movie into the into the costumes which tell a story here into the wallpaper <laughs> into you know certain, the way phones are used yeah and the, these pieces of story that i don't that I, I i can just feel confident come together even if i if I, even if he's way way ahead of me on them there's kind of the you love to be in the hands of a of somebody who is that assured and, and is that engaged in trying to uh you know get all these details right about about this you know the strange thing about the the fancy sushi in the interrogation room uh it's a that's a nice touch and it's it's it ends up being a an important character moment between the two of them so it's a really good movie and and but it's like it was also one of those things where it's like I hope that no one is no one on the podcast asked me to get too specific about certain things that happened because I'm not going to have any answers for that because I need to see this film again at least one more time. I know I was I was like oh we're recording this before the wider public has seen it so no one's gone to fill in the Wikipedia plot summary <laughs> for me. The Wikipedia plot summary is uh, like th- those one things sentence. those things Very can helpful. sometimes be uh, in- incredibly detailed but I just I don't think mm. even when it is in it's going to be t- detailed enough for the kind of thing you're talking yeah. about. 
Old Boy is one of my all-time favorite films. I that yeah. movie just blew me away when it came out, and I, like I've followed Park's career ever since. I got to interview him at Fantastic Fest, and it was it was just kind of one of those like lifer moments for me. But I asked him about a whole bunch of these small details, like one of the big things being the way he uses language, because Suray says over and over when she's meeting new people, like, you know, pardon me, my Korean is inadequate uh, because I'm from China. And the subtitles like never suggest in any way that her language is inadequate. Like you never mm-hmm. catch her in like a malpropism or like misspeaking. But it's clearly important to her because when she has something really important to say, she talks to her phone translator and has her phone translator tell Hey June or, you know, whoever it is. And Park's answers about why he did some of these things, the pockets or like the coming back over and over to the song The Mist, which is from 1967 and is a, a big Korean classic, or how he used the language. They were so detailed and so thought through. And it just it blew my mind. Like he nothing in this movie happens by accident. Everything is a symbol. Everything is thought through. And I think as more and more interviews come out, I'm really looking forward to getting mine out there. But I think there are going to be a bunch of interviews with him that are just going to be like unpacking the extremely detailed thought process that went into every aspect of this movie. He's definitely an overthinker. You know, sometimes you you talk to filmmakers or artists in any field that are like, it just that just seemed right. I just went on instinct. Like, no, <laughs> everything here is an intellectual choice. Yeah. And I, and I think I think, again, because of that, I don't I have happened to have seen most of his films more than once already. And they always do better. They always do better on repeat viewings because there's so much more to kind of take in. And you're not as you don't feel like you're just being overwhelmed with information it's just like oh this is actually kind of smooth sailing it's just like he's just kind of ahead of you uh, the, the, the whole time yeah you feel like you're in confident hands if not necessarily right. literally exactly what hands. i was going to say to <laughs> <laughs> like word for word what, what we were we were saying the same thing i'll see my inner genevieve is speaking up after all yeah. <laughs> well, what did you feel though? I mean, I, I guess if we're going to compare this to something like The Handmaiden, I mean, The Handmaiden had, you know, has just eroticism and it is a very, mm-hmm. it's got a lot of heat to it. This is a little more reserved. I mean, was it harder for you? Did you find it harder to access, I guess, on that kind of a visceral level as The Handmaiden? Not at all. I mean, I think there is heat there, but it's it's a cool heat, you know. It's yeah. a it's a it's it's a blue flame to the uh, the red flame of the handmaiden. If you want to get visual about it, but I mean, I think what creates that is just the specter of the unknown between the two of them. Like there is, as their relationship is forming. There is this big question of whether, you know, she murdered her husband. And so Heijun can never like really be certain about like what their relationship is. And as the movie develops, like there is even more reason for her for him to feel that way. Mm-hmm. So I think like the tension of that uncertainty combined with like a very clear and obvious just like physical visceral attraction between them it just 
amplifies that you know it's like the it's like the butterflies in a pit in your stomach (laughs) you know like Mm -hmm. it just like creates a sort of sandwich of anxiety and attraction that i think is very compelling and honestly probably miserable to live in (laughs) for an extended (laughs) period of time but as far as like keeping you engaged with the relationship i think it's just as effective as the handmaidens like very very sexy uh stuff that it does well, speaking of um, hot sex, there's one sex scene in this movie, and the word that I keep coming back to, I literally had my review run through a copy editor today who pointed out that I used the word decorous like multiple times in one paragraph, but it's the word that keeps coming up for me. Like, they're decorous sushi meal together, they're, they're decorous uh, time in his apartment where she sits down and like tells him a gentle story. There's just so much like reserved to their relationship, which reminds me a great deal of of Brief Encounter and how that affair carries on in public, you know, with a lot of limitations on what they can say and do because they're they're surrounded by observers. The sex scene, though, is between Heijun and his wife. And that's a big open question for me throughout this, because unlike in Brief Encounter, where we never see Alec's wife or what that relationship is like, here we do go home with Heijun and see what his domestic life is like. And to me, it seems very comfortable, very uh, familiar, like these two people do care about each other, maybe in a reserved way, but that just kind of seems like who he is. I'm very curious what you made of that relationship. Not to get ahead of ourselves in the yeah. connections territory, but I mean, I think this is a like a very clear sort of flipping of the point of view character uh, with uh, Laura and and Hey June, because like what we get of So Ray's domestic life is mm, glimpses at best, you know. Uh, well, I mean, we never even really see her interact with her first husband other than the one big thing she does to him, which I guess we don't need to tiptoe around spoilers here. But, I don't uh, know. Yes, she, this is this is yeah. a movie that people might question whether they want to see and under what circumstances, yeah. especially given the length. And I, I think I think we're being very decorous about spoilers. And I think that that's the right uh, <laughs> okay. approach here. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, I, well, I will keep it uh, vague then. But uh, point being, like, we get the domestic view through Hey June that we get with Laura and we don't get it with the other half of each respective relationship. But as far as like what that actual relationship is, like as with Brief Encounter, like it seems like a nice marriage, a perfectly yeah. fine marriage, you know? It's, oh, I forget, what what's the term they have for it? Not weekend marriage, but she says it early on. Like it, I can't remember the exact term they use for it, but it seems like this is sort of a somewhat, if not common, at least known arrangement uh, in the culture, uh, you know, where couples work in different cities and, you know, maybe come together on a semi-regular basis. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with your take on it, too, Genevieve, about it being kind of a, a you know, sort of a gender flip on, on Brief Encounter and, and, and it being a marriage that doesn't really seem to be in any kind of trouble. In fact, it, you know, one of the things that's interesting about it is that sex is actually a priority is something they just discuss as something as a uh, 
potential pitfall of, of a relationship as they get a certain age and, uh, you know, how that's something they're going to try to avoid is just kind of letting that part of their, their lives as a married couple kind of go. Um, I thought that was, that's a nice touch and that, that's certainly nothing we get, you know, from Fred or whatever, like that, that doesn't seem like, uh, the most, uh, charged romantically charged relationship. Yeah, I mean, both relationships are like fairly aromantic, which is the condition that allows these would-be affairs yeah. to to flourish, you know. But I will say, and this tiptoes into spoiler territory, so I will I will try and be vague. But Hey June's relationship with his wife, the way it was depicted, it did make me a little confused about how it ends or how it resolves toward the end of the movie. And maybe it's something, again, that will become clear on a, a second viewing. But basically, his his wife's motivations, who we, we do meet her, and we do spend a little time with her, even on her own. She gets a couple scenes without him at her place of business, which is a nuclear facility, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly. So she takes action at the end of the movie. And I don't fully understand the motivations behind those actions, other than allowing the plot to move forward. But I trust that they're probably there, and I just need another viewing to pick up on them. <laughs> I think the yes. fair answer there, though, is that Hey June doesn't understand her motivations fully. Yeah, that's true. like what happens yeah. there is confusing to him as well. And I think that it's kind of indicative of the fact that So Ray really understands him. You know, she addresses some of the things in his life, like his obsession with cold cases or his insomnia, with just a remarkable insight. And this whole thing is it's one of those relationship stories about maybe kind of the fantasy of somebody coming into your life who fully understands you, who sees past your defenses, who can speak to who you really are, who can ask the right questions. And I don't think that his wife is like that, even though they seem to have this like perfectly functional relationship, uh, physically, emotionally, just personally, you know, they, they sit down and do hobbyist stuff together. They seem to enjoy each other's company, but they don't necessarily have the same kind of emotional intimacy. And it makes me wonder if he actually how much he actually wants to pursue physical intimacy with Sure, because he's not chasing her. Neither of them is chasing the other one in a like hot hands on handmaiden kind of way where it just seems like they cannot possibly spend another moment in each other's presence without falling into the sack. It feels much more like they understand each other. And what that means is very different for each of them. And, you know, unpacking that is a large amount of what the movie is about. But yeah, I, I think in this movie, when there are places where you don't understand why somebody does something or what they're thinking, either the answer is going to come later or the answer is that a more prominent character in that scene also doesn't understand and is left with that bafflement. And that's why it's there. Yeah. Before we move on to connections, I just I got to ask the the question that for me is the the elephant in the room. Which decision to leave is this title about? I would think that it was just a like almost an in-joke because there are so many cases of people leaving one thing or another, leaving a place, leaving a relationship, leaving an idea. 
in this movie that the title could almost be a joke. But Park actually referred to Fantastic Fest in a Q&A to it as though it's it's just about one of them. And I honestly can't remember which one it was because my <laughs> my my first thought was like, oh, that isn't that isn't the one that I was thinking of out of the the many. So I'm curious if there's a decision to leave that stands out for you here or if you'd rather just keep that title as uh, referring to like, I don't know, an awful lot of the action of the film, really. I mean, in my reading there, again, I think this film is pretty clearly divided into two parts and each part ends with a very important decision to leave one state, a place or a state of being. So I kind of see, I guess, the rhyme between those two decisions as the where the title comes from. I, I don't like if I had to choose one, I'd say like the end, the, the you know, wow. the, the end, the end is the, the decision to leave. But that's just I think because it's the most like, in your face, I guess. But the first act takes place, and I'm pretty sure it's Busan. And, uh, you know, and he's living in a suburb, I want to say Iso, but Iso, I could be wrong. Yeah. yeah. And so the, you know, between part one and part two, he decides his he decides to leave Busan to go to Iso. You know, it's a very clear, like... Iso is the foggy area, though. That's where correct. the... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then the second part's decision to leave, again, I won't get into the details of it, but it is a more sort of metaphorical, uh, you uh-huh. know, decision to leave. So I think yeah. they're sort of the play between that very like literal, uh, you know, uh, interpretation and the very sort of metaphorical, emotional version of it is where the, you know, they come together. Yeah, I think I'm definitely in the sort of accept the mystery camp on this one. I just I can't see any unambiguous piece that would that would say oh there's only one of these decisions. Uh, I don't I don't so I don't know I, I, and I don't know I, I assume that Park was going to be coy about what he thought about which is I guess the right decision on his part, but uh, the decision to leave that question unanswered. Um, so uh, oh, nicely yeah. done. Yeah, so, yeah, I, uh, I, I, well, he wasn't coy about it at all. He was very specific. And I'm kind of glad I can't remember the answer because I, I actually like Genevieve's answer better. I, I like the degree to which that title can stretch throughout pretty much every aspect of this film. I guess if we're going to ask that question, we could potentially start uh, digging into exactly which of the encounters in Brief Encounter is the <laughs> Brief Encounter. But I, I think to do that, we would probably have to jump to connections. So we're going to take a break and come back and dig into how Decision to Leave and Brief Encounter talk to each other. So now it's time for Connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things that they have in common. I was just kidding about jumping into Brief Encounter, uh, which which Brief Encounter is the Brief Encounter or or is the whole thing, you know, their their little two or three or however many weeks sojourn the Brief Encounter. That's not the most interesting thing we can dig into here. What is the most interesting thing we can dig into here? 
Well, it is a, a smaller connection uh, than some of the other ones we, we have on the list. But Scott did mention the the fog in ISO uh, in, in Decision to Leave, uh, as well as the, the song, The Mist, that, that carries throughout it. And, you know, fog and mist plays a, an important part in Brief Encounter as well, as to sort of the... the Laura notes the rare occasion when it is a sunny day and how differently she feels and how the situation just seems so much more hopeful and joyful when the sun is out. And so I think the presence of fog and mist is really important to both of these films. And I I would put good money on Park uh, having taken that more or less directly from Brief Encounter. Because I think especially when you're talking about a relationship such as these, you don't know what the other person's life is when they're not directly in front of you. You know, like when you're having an affair with someone, you are only really experiencing their life as it is when they're with you. This whole other part of their existence is shrouded in mystery to you. And I think the mist and fog is a a very clear metaphor for that in both films. Yeah. uh, Okay. So first off, I want to just say that I asked you what the most interesting thing that we could jump into as comparison between these movies was, and you brought up the weather. Uh, But uh, second of all, yeah, uh, the the song "The Mist" didn't necessarily land hugely for me in Decision to Leave is like one of the major things. But Parks at a Fantastic Fest like literally said that it was the most important thing in the movie. The the recurrence of this. I'm just gonna pat myself on the back right now. <laughs> the recurrence of this this like 1967 like romance classic. So here's a thing that uh, those of us who are not from South Korea and haven't been hearing this film as like the background pop music of our lives for decades might miss out on the version that the the granny as the subtitles have it keeps listening to is the classic original version uh, by a very, very famous south korean singer and there was later a cover of it by a male singer Park decided not to include that version, but over the credits, there is a version sung by the original singer and that male singer. He had them tracked down and had them record a new version that was a duet that plays over the closing credits because he thinks the the themes of this song are like just define what the, the themes of the movie are, which is really interesting to me because I couldn't find a translation of the song. And when I interviewed him, I asked him about that. And he said, yeah, there's there's not a good English language translation of it on the site. Mubi, uh, which is putting this movie out, had it translated and the lyrics that you see on screen in the subtitles of the film are apparently the most accurate translation out there of the lyrics uh, into English, which is fascinating. Somebody's somebody's going to get some traffic out of like having a native Korean speaker translate these lyrics into English and just putting them on the net. Like, what the heck is this song about? But you, what you said, Genevieve, like really nails it. It's about the obscurity of uh, understanding somebody else in a romantic situation. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think I think that feeds into another important connection here too about you know this forbidden love i suppose between uh the uh two main characters and in, in, in kind of the the world outside of them as well and and how they relate to that how that how that sort of imposes itself upon them i mean in with uh 
Laura and Alec and brief encounter, you know, they, they, they have these, this space, this re- refreshment area of the train station and they have, or the, or the movie theater, they have some spaces where they can kind of be together in public, though it's very difficult. And I think there's a, there's an understanding that if they run into the wrong people, you know, that, that, you know, they're going to be found out and who, they're going to be found out for what even, I mean, like they're not, it's not even, it doesn't even develop, you know, it do anything quite as tawdry as you think other than two people falling for each other. Um, there's but some kissing. That's true. There's, they're, they're, they, 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 they do kissing. Yeah. Some Best kind. And some, bo- and some boat boating as well. <laughs> forbidden good. boating. Forbidden boating. Uh, um, but I mean, I think there's a little something, almost a little bit more, I mean, if, for obvious reasons, the the um, relationship between Heijun and So Ray is not going to be looked upon uh, <laughs> that, uh, too kindly by Heijun's uh, colleagues, and so that all, all has to take place in you know a pri- at a private space. But you know, there's also just that the questions that they have of each other, particularly that he has of her, that. That, that that's a barrier as well i mean there's that, that's kind of a main difference between these two relationships is one is is you know i think there's kind of a a very easy trust i guess or an openness that it kind of develops in brief encounter that that's not possible in decision to leave because there's so much so many very heavy questions that are hanging over this relationship and so it's so it's a more like a more of an, an intrigue and a mystery and kind of a something a little bit more seductive in a different way. I think that's true. But I also think one of the interesting things in both of these movies is that what's standing between them kind of operates on two levels. Like both of them are in societies that, you know, frown on impropriety, that frown on public displays of affection, that, you know, frown on breaking social codes. But at the same time, in both cases, you have a kind of a personal reason that operates on a completely different level from that societal disapproval. In Brief Encounter, you have Laura's, you know, which we discussed in the the first part of this discussion, her reluctance to betray her family or lose her family or endanger uh, her security with her family. In Decision to Leave, it's really kind of Heijun's morals that stand in the way more than anything else, and not his morality and not wanting to betray his wife, but his morality as a policeman. Like, he believes in the truth. He believes in uncovering crime more than he believes in anything else. And it's not that he could not possibly have an affair because it might break up his home. It's that he can't let himself compromise his dedication to uncovering the truth. And he knows full well that his association with Soray is compromising him. And he can't let himself give into it fully because he can't risk becoming biased. And and that's one of the big things that the movie is negotiating, you know, not whether he loves her or loves his wife or whether he can whether there's a way to love them both. It's whether he can love his dedication to the truth and being an honest cop and also love this woman who may be a murderer, maybe playing him. He doesn't know and he's trying to figure that out. Uh, and loving her is definitely going to get in the way of figuring it out. So, you know, it's it's not just love forbidden by society, though it is in both cases. It's also love forbidden by one of the participants for personal reasons, which just really, really complicates the whole thing in, in ways that I think is very, are very interesting in both cases. 
you know, you you noted that decision to leave the relationship uh, forms, you know, a, a little more privately than in brief encounter. But you you know, there <laughs> there also it also is like forming like in a literal interrogation room where they are being watched by his coworkers. You know, like that sushi scene <laughs> is so meaningful and it comes up like multiple times like his partner brings it up you know like it is it is noticed it's conspicuous consumption yeah oh man exactly also that is some good looking sushi i do not blame his co-workers for being like yeah he he sprung for the fancy stuff even the the, like the soy sauce packets were bespoke um (laughs) but (laughs) uh but Obviously, like, you know, a fair bit of their relationship takes place in sort of his or her apartment. Yes, her apartment and and his apartment, I guess. Both of their their private spaces. Because remember, she uncovers his uh, obsession wall. That's at his place. Right, right, right. Yes, of course. Um, But in terms of connections, what struck me is that both of these couples have a sort of getaway you know, where they are, they kind of remove themselves from the prying eyes of the society of, of which they they are a part. Uh, Laura and Alec take their little car rides off and stand on the bridge together and, and everything is wonderful there. And Heijun and Soray have this uh, sort of beautiful interlude at the temple uh, where she's uh, she uses his chapstick and they do actually kiss there, right? I'm not I'm not misremembering. Do they, or, or am I just uh, extrapolating from the the chapstick uh, sharing? You've seen it more recently than I have. I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't yeah, remember. Yeah, I seem to remember them actually kissing, but it, it could have just been uh, some some chapstick sharing that I <laughs> upgraded to kissing. Pretty, it's, that's but, pretty intimate for sure. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But it, at any rate, so they they do kind of have this moment of like escape and a uh, you know a private shared beautiful space for their you know their love and attraction to each other to kind of be on display more openly um and with uh without the shame quite as much although maybe it being at a temple and decision to leave is uh maybe still adding maybe a layer of shame there as well although the fact that that private space is a public space is Mm -hmm. you know pretty interesting in itself there's just there's nobody around to witness it like they kind of own this space but it's not a private space per se which is i don't know just an interesting thing in comparison to brief encounter and the way so much of so much of the story that takes place in the the comfort station is just about how intimacy between people and understanding between people can turn a a public space into a private space, not a private space that's good for, you know, consummating your forbidden love, but a private space that the two of you kind of create together with mutual understanding where you can talk quietly and just not be part of all of the other worlds around you, such as, for instance, the love affair going on between the one of the station conductors and the, the woman that runs the tea shop. That's it just that that whole I love that set so much. It just feels like such a interesting little sanctuary within this train station, you know, like you enter it and it's like you're in a this world apart. I mean, you can hear I suppose the trains coming in, but you know, there's there's almost like this implied discretion <laughs> to a place where where you can where you know, where you can feel free at least until you're a stupid busybody <laughs> frenemy comes in and start it starts popping off and then then uh kind of the whole the whole place is ruined both of these films are really about 
how you create intimacies for yourself and how different things can be intimate depending on what kind of associations you have with them. You know, sitting at a table together in a tea room can be intimate. Going to a Buddhist temple together, sharing uh, an umbrella, sharing chapstick can be intimate. You know, when two people who love each other do something together and both of them understand what it means, like that's a kind of intimacy in and of itself. And both of these films are very much about the creation of all of these kinds of like little meaningful intimacies that might or might not be seen by like nosy observers as something meaningful if they weren't there to get the the full context of it. One of my favorite little details of the refreshment room in Brief Encounter is how many little ways were shown that this is a place where the rules can bend. <laughs> uh, the the serving hours for alcohol mm-hmm. being the sort of the most notable, like that comes up two or three times. Mm-hmm. You know, like oh, it's 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 after hours, but uh, okay, you know, or um, or sort not of the, okay the, in one case. In one case, it's like, or, hey, right. I don't even know you. I'm not going to accommodate you. People. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So they so they can they can bend but not break maybe uh-huh. and that is sort of that lines up i guess with the relationship that uh, laura and alec are conducting in in that space yeah i gotta say the the punchline of the scene where the the two uh soldiers confront mrs baggett and try to get her to serve alcohol out of hours and she stands them off and this the situation escalates and escalates and escalates and they're finally driven away and her first action is to like take a hit of brandy herself that is it's (laughs) such an understated comic moment but that is a great punchline for sure well, I I, I want to touch briefly on, uh, like, I started all this off with a keynote about how sometimes not consummating a relationship might be more compelling than consummating it because it's so, um, you know, unusual in a story. But I feel like both of these movies are just really fundamentally kind of about the romanticism of longing. The romanticism of, like, living in that moment of wanting somebody else and not knowing if you're ever going to be able to to have them you know if you're ever going to be able to be together in a way that isn't surrounded by like walls and regulations and and rules and observers both of these movies in a way again that reminds me very much of Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love in particular just draw these lines around living in a moment of yearning and romanticizing yearning as maybe something maybe something deeper and and more painful and more real um and more powerful than actually getting what you want and you know i i think that that's the kind of idea that's romanticized specifically by people who don't get what they want who really are in a re- unrequited relationship but i think both of these movies just kind of do it exquisitely in terms of making you just really feel what the participants can't have and are to some degree denying themselves as much as society is denying it to them. That's one of the feelings from the movies period that I most love that tension that is not resolved that, you know, because I mean, what are, what are movies, but sort of the raising and and resolving of, of tensions, but this is kind of, this is something where that longing is just something that exists between these people and they and it can't be resolved it just it fluctuates or intensifies but it just it, it stays there it becomes it becomes a problem <laughs> but within that tension is just so much you know emotion and and desire and you know all that all that stuff is just you know i think when you 
when that gets solved in one way or another, that's, I mean, the, then the tension is broken and you don't have it anymore. And so, so to, to sustain it for, for that long and to, to make it something that's unresolvable, it just makes these movies just deeply romantic and emotionally engaging. I think the romantic longing in Brief Encounter is so strong and pure, and in Decision to Leave, it is so complex and nuanced. And they they really feel like two different like sides of the same coin, I guess, I guess in, in that mm-hmm. respect. And what is interesting to me in Decision to Leave is how Heijun is almost attempting to de-romanticize his attraction to Soray, you know, within the context of this this murder investigation. You know, he's peering longingly into her windows, but it's a stakeout, <laughs> you know? It's, it's like he's trying to not absolve himself of what he feels, but he's trying to, like, recontextualize it, at least at first, you know, before they sort of, in, in, in the first act, I guess, before they, he sort of admits to himself what has been going on. But it's just a lot more, it's weird to call an affair innocent, but it does feel more innocent in Brief Encounter or pure, yeah. I guess, uh, is, is a more accurate way to put it. You know, it's strangers well, murder, on a train. Murder is you not, know? Yeah, is yeah, not yeah. a possible, but it's not really a part exactly, of it. Exactly, exactly. There's, <laughs> yeah. there's, and suspicion, you know, there's, and like, there's not, like, you don't, you know, there's, I think right. you, I don't think there's like a huge sense in Brief Encounter of two people who are like, I don't know about this person. You know, like, I don't, I'm suspicious of this you know, I don't think I think there is something mm-hmm. pure about the fact that they there's an implicit trust in them. There's not a, there's a, you know I think that they understand that their feelings for each other are feelings that are earnest and not as complicated as 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 in decision to leave, which is full of mystery. You know, and mm-hmm. and and uh, attraction, but also and also but also you know uh, trepidation. So I know that uh, people may at this point have a lot of trepidation and tension over when exactly and how exactly we're going to resolve this conversation. So uh, you know, we're, we're going to go ahead and let people down from that tension with the resolution that maybe uh, not all of our characters fully get here. And we're going to move on to your next picture show. Brief Encounter is streaming on the Criterion channel, it's on HBO Max, and it's generally available for digital rental. It's also on Criterion Blu-ray and DVD. Decision to Leave opened in very limited release in theaters on October 14th, and it's rolling out slowly nationwide. Finally, it's time to talk about a film or film-related item that complements this set of episodes. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. This week, we're doing something slightly different. We're going to honor these two movies by talking about a pairing that never was. In an alternate version of this week's show, we considered pairing Ruben Oslin's new Rich People Suck farce Triangle of Sadness with another big movie about class conflict and disaster on a boat, specifically James Cameron's Titanic. Uh, We dropped that pairing for a handful of different reasons, but we figured this might be a good space for many chat about Triangle of Sadness. Scott, you are a big fan of this movie, I take it? You want to give it first crack? Yeah, um, uh, I am a fan of this movie, uh, mostly because I find it uh, very funny. Um, This is a movie that's kind of told in three distinct acts. The first act follows a couple of models who then we see again in the second act, which is takes place on a, on a yacht um, in which they, in which these models are basically given complimentary seats because in order to have a place on this yacht, you need to be incredibly 
wealthy. You need to be uh, among the, the an, a higher social class. And then the third act uh, takes place somewhere else. And we're going to just, I won't, I won't spoil where it takes place, but not on the yacht anymore. Though I guess, I guess saying that, <laughs> saying that uh, we already said that this was potentially paired with Titanic. So you could say, I think the, you could pretty much safely say that the yacht, you know, gets in a little bit of uh, trouble, a little bit of trouble in the, in the open sea. Uh, but, um, you know, and of course, you know, another film we could have paired it with uh, is uh, Monty Python's uh, The Meaning of Life, particularly a restaurant scene in that movie is uh, also something that I think is a pretty obvious influence on Triangle of Status. I just, I found it a very entertaining and funny satire. I understand that it is, uh, that other folks find it obvious which i guess it is but but i also feel like the way i put it in my review is like it may be shooting fish in a barrel but these fish kind of have it coming <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> uh, I, you know i, I you know i i just you just want to see these fish just get shot up and it gets into social dynamics that are that exist in the world and that need to be addressed and rarely do get addressed and and, and i didn't mind the reason i didn't mind the, the sort of the bluntness of it is because one it's really funny and two osterland is a really exceptional filmmaker and there's a lot of really beautiful i, I think it's handled with a kind of in a little in a deadpan style that is uh, that is complemented by you know his approach to actually filming scenes i mean there's a really nice kind of cool distance to the filmmaking that makes the the silliness and absurdity of what goes on in front of the camera really pop. So I, I was a fan of this movie, but Tasha, you were not from, uh, from what I understand. I really wasn't. And that's not necessarily contradicting anything that you're saying about it, except the, I thought it was funny and I liked it part. What did um, you think of the square though? Did you like the square? I I thought the square was just like a stunning, stunning movie. And oh, I, Force Majeure, okay. I thought was... Oh, that's um, great. It's not as good as Force Majeure. Yeah. Force Majeure, I think, is just like really powerful and, and built around just a, a kind of an unbeatable concept that I've seen just a very small handful of movies that kind of have that there's a moment where somebody does something uh, instinctively and then just has to live with it for, mm. you know, the rest of however long the relationships last. And I, I really like that uh, sort of thought experiment. But here, I, I just very little of this connected with me. I guess we don't want to get too much into the third act where it takes place and, and how it's shaped. But I, th- I thought the third act was by far the most interesting of the three stories. Oh, interesting. That's a lot. Well, that's usually where people depart on this movie. Oh, that's that's really interesting. Well, the third act, uh, I will say limits the number of characters involved, which for me made makes the story just a lot more interesting. Hmm. The second act in particular uh, takes place on the yacht with a really large cast of rich uh, characters who only a few of whom really distinguish them themselves. And I'll not awful yeah, lot of but... the first act. No, no, no. Give me, give me a second. You, okay. I'll you, give you a second. You, 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 right. you said your piece. All right. All right. Yeah. The first act is mostly about these, uh, this, this model and his girlfriend and, and their relationship and the world that they come up in. And then we move to the yacht and it's a completely different story. And then we move to the third act and it's a completely different story. I found the shifting focus just very distracted, you know, not not very thematically unified in an interesting way, not focusing in on uh, individual characters enough in a, an interesting way. But I also just found this movie very repetitive. You know, the the two models are 
constantly fighting. They have a, a toxic, unpleasant relationship, but the fights all feel the same and they go on forever. When hmm. things go bad on the boat, they go bad in a very messy way. And then we just kind of like live with the escalation, escalation, escalation of that in ways that uh -huh. are very unpleasant and don't have a lot of variation. <laughs> in the third act, we see some some things play out about power dynamics that struck me as the most interesting thing going on in the film, but they just kind of hit a groove and repeat and repeat until an ending that's pretty, I think, spectacular and, and thoughtful and interesting. But it's just, hmm. it's such a long ride to get there. Huh. I mean, yeah, I mean, this could, <laughs> this would have been a very long podcast because there's so much to talk about with this movie. But I will just say, I think that I mean, you can't have the, the third act without the second. You need, and I think that the, the major characters that we meet in the second act, I mean, we the, we dispense of some characters, obviously, but but the major characters are established in that second act and carry over into the third. And um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I think I think I just I, it really comes down to do you find this film righteous and funny and i just did i just it, i connected really well with it you know i liked i liked having woody harrelson as a drunken <laughs> captain uh, you know arguing with a drunken russian you know oligarch about about capitalism and and socialism all that stuff was you know over uh, all that stuff was very funny and then i liked all the all the gross stuff too i think it was just it, it it's funny to me to see what happens when people who feel insulated by their behavior, by from the world, learn that they are not insulated from anything, and and uh, it starts with seasickness, and then it kind of goes on from there. And I don't know, I was uh, I was taken with it, and uh, and I think I feel like it. I feel like it's something that it's the type of movie that we don't get to see much of. We don't. I don't think we get to see a lot of satires. We don't get to see a lot of the type of movies that Boone Wellman have made. And I think I, I'm kind of grateful for to Oslan for doing two in a row that may not be palmed or worthy as both films did win the palm, but kind of contribute something important to the international conversation. So uh, I, I think it's worth seeing. And, and for what it's worth, it got kind of a big response in the, it, when I saw it with an audience, people were like laughing and clapping and it was like kind of raucous. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's the first English language movie. It's fun. I don't know. I guess we're, we're kind of at odds on this one. We're kind of at odds at this one. Um, though it seems like not a, the vehement personal way we sometimes get uh, at odds on films. It we're recording this before its bigger weekend. It's and yet another one of these art house films with the slow rollout. It did really really well in like four theaters on opening weekend, and it remains to be seen whether it's going to have nearly as much luck with a wide rollout. But yeah, speaking of uh, its, its Bunyelian qualities, which I actually absolutely agree with. And I, I don't know, like Buñuel's uh, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie and Exterminating Angel are both very repetitive films as well in terms of finding a theme and then just exploring it through the same kind of action over and over. But I love both of those films. So I'm not yeah. sure why this one didn't land as well with me. I think if we'd been able to pair this with Exterminating Angel, which in some ways it very strongly resembles, uh, specifically in terms of its target and in terms of some of the, the thematic ideas about rich people laid low, I might have been more enthused. But we already did Exterminating Angel as a previous pairing. We also talked about pairing it with Monkey Business, the Marx Brothers movie, which is all <laughs> 
also, you know, mayhem and uh, rich uh-huh. people being laid low on a boat. And that movie is not nearly as accessible for uh, streaming as one would no. like, unless you, you know, watch a rip of it on yeah, YouTube. I mean, why, why would Paramount Plus ever want to like, I don't know, forget it. I'm going to get mad. I'm just getting mad about it, about the way, about the treatment of like prime Marx Brothers. Uh, though I think Universal now owns all those early Marx Brothers films, so I shouldn't be those early kind of classic Paramount. So anyway, anyway, yeah, we we had a lot of options here, and and we yeah. talked through it a lot. But and I'm Titanic, glad we at least course. got to uh, to talk about uh, Triangle a little bit. I yeah. will say that immediately after watching this at Fantastic Fest, I texted my husband to say I never thought I would say this, but the best scene in the two and a half hour movie I just watched was Woody Harrelson and a, a drunk Russian looking stuff up on google and reading it to each other off their phones <laughs> I, you know i agree that that's a hilarious scene and sure. I, I i i wish the movie was tighter and more pointed and more like that kind of uh entertainment but sure. people's mileage may vary mm-hmm. that's it for this edition of the next picture show but we'll be back next week with a new pairing Genevieve, can you set us up for our episodes releasing on November 1st and 8th? In the new Todd Field movie Tar, Cate Blanchett stars as Lydia Tar, the conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic, one of the great orchestras in the world. Lydia's accomplishments, including the EGOT, have made her a household name and a trailblazer in a field where women are vastly outnumbered by men. But Lydia's status has also allowed her to sexually manipulate and abuse the less powerful and feel insulated from consequences. Tar is about her comeuppance. The arc of Lydia's downfall, along with the monstrousness that her privilege affords, recalls Glenn Close's Marquis de Mertoy and Dangerous Liaisons, Stephen Freer's 1988 adaptation of Chaudelot de Laclos' epistolary novel. The gamesmanship in Dangerous Liaisons may seem like a world away from Tar, but on our next set of episodes, we'll draw the connections between women of different eras who finally confront the consequences of their actions. For now, we welcome your feedback on Brief Encounter, Decision to Leave, Hey, Triangle of Sadness, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott? Well, let me let me speak for myself and our absent co-host, uh, Keith, because uh, you can find both of us at uh, the reveal, uh, the real the reveal dot substack dot com. We just got through our first year and we're going to keep rolling along. We encourage you to um, subscribe, of course, uh, or at least maybe get a free subscription and take a look and see if we earn your subscription dollar. But you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work at The New York Times, The Ringer, uh, The Guardian, uh, Vulture and other fine publications. Uh, uh, Keith Phipps is at kphips3000 on twitter and you can find his work in uh, gentlemen's quarterly and or gq.com really and tv guide and the ringer and uh vulture and other places uh, genevieve what about you i am the tv editor at vulture and you can find me on social medias at genevieve koski tasha I am the film and streaming editor at Polygon.com. You can find my review of Decision to Leave uh, there, along with hopefully soon my uh, interview with Park Chan-wook about the film. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod. Get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And as always, we appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to us. 
Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Oh, <laughs> 